0: You can get people to do things because they want to based on just throwing more money at them, but it's, that's only a Band-Aid solution that's not going to really solve things. So it's good to pay people well and compensate people well. If people are working for your company just for the money, that's a problem. Is your current success putting a lot of demands on you? If you're good at what you do, and you are, then everyone wants you. But that's no way to scale. If you're delivering spectacular results, you should be commanding higher fees, working with only the best clients. Welcome to the Hands Off CEO Podcast, where world-class agency owners and consultants learn how to fully monetize their expertise and scale profits by doing less. Here's your host, Mandy Ellefson. Today on the podcast, we go a little bit deeper from the last episode. And we share some more stories, some of the more the vulnerable stories that we haven't really shared on the podcast openly before. We've shared them a lot in our Scale to Freedom tribe here and there where they're applicable because within the tribe, we can share things more vulnerably. But I just felt like it was a good time to be able to bring some of this out, share a little bit more of you know, the real life benefits to be shifting your business in a way where you can really be hands-off. And it's not just about the money. It's not about just like, popping your legs up and sipping Mai Tais on the beach. It's about something bigger than this. And Ross and I talked today about what it takes to do that. We've talked about culture within the team. We talked about, gave some examples of how other people have been able to shift the load and delegate a lot of work in a very short amount of time and be really able to install that ownership. We really hope you enjoy the episode.
1: Hey, Mandy. Today, I was interested in hearing a little bit about something that you hear a lot about in the business world, especially with six and seven-figure businesses, and that is the idea of a lifestyle business. I think a lot of people get into business with the idea that they just want to make a decent amount of money and not have to stress too hard, be able to take vacations when they want, whatever their goals are. And so they're trying to make this lifestyle business that pays them a good salary, but there's some problems with the idea of a seven-figure lifestyle business. Do you want to talk about some of the issues with this whole idea for the types of CEOs that you've helped?
0: Yeah, there is an issue with the concept of a lifestyle business. And one of them is, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I want to keep things myself. I basically want to be a freelancer and I want to be a solo business owner, but it's not necessarily an ideal lifestyle. It's a stressful job that can really tax you. So I want to point that out because a lot of times people will say, I want a lifestyle business, not because they really want a lifestyle business. It's what it is is that they're afraid of what's next and are not willing to do what it takes to build the leadership skills to be able to have a real business that provides them a real lifestyle. Because I don't know about you, Ross, but it does not sound to me like a great lifestyle to go and be working 50, 60 hours per week. And then if you go on vacation, I talk to CEOs. And business owners constantly who have not had vacations for two, three, four, even five years, some of them, like, I haven't had a vacation since I started the business. I haven't had a real vacation. I'm like, are you kidding me? How can you live that way? And they wonder why they're approaching burnout. And that is like on one polar end side of the spectrum, right? But the other side is is going and taking vacations and then they're working vacations and they're not able to actually have much of a lifestyle. And, you know, there was one client actually that we worked with. I remember he had this mindset quite early on in our work together, and he had a small team, just a few staff members, and had a lot of opportunities in his company that did, did a lot of CIRA implementation in the software side, and very talented. But I remember bumping into him at a conference, and he was so busy with just running the day-to-day in his business, that he was sitting there on his laptop the entire time. And he said, you know, I'm not really even sure why I went to this conference. I didn't really get much out of it. He missed one of our retreats because he just simply didn't have time. Our retreat that was actually in the same city, by the way. He didn't have the ability to come to this because he was so stuck in this mindset of staying smaller that he was not able to actually expand and see how him further developing his team was going to give him more freedom Yes, it did come with him having to learn new skills, hiring other people, and the responsibilities that come with that. But as he progressed further in the program, he did actually start to notice how he got a lot more freedom as he was empowering more, more of his team to step up. You know, I, I would love to say that, you know, he got to a point where his company could run completely without him and that he had become this $10 million success. But the reality is, is that he allowed himself to get so stuck in that Superman mode that we had talked about in the last episode, he was not willing to let go. I mean, we help our clients be able to let go and be able to put in place the systems, the people, the mindsets, the processes to be able to safely let go. But this is an example of someone who wasn't willing. That being said, he still had tremendous transformations, but he hit up against this point. And I think a lot of it was due to this mindset of keeping it, I don't want to get too big. I don't want like I want this to be a lifestyle business. And as a result, it really impacted the lifestyle that he could have. And that it was very accessible to him and just another CEO in similar circumstances was able to create a much greater level of freedom for themselves because they were just more willing and committed.
1: Yeah, it's almost like people want to keep the lifestyle business because in their minds That equates to freedom, not having to manage a big team, not having all the pressure of a higher revenue company, perhaps, but they're not really free. If you're spending 10 hours, 12 hours a day on your laptop, if you can't drive across town to a retreat once a year, how free are you? You traded that actual freedom for this sense of control, almost, where they that's what they really desire. They're saying they want freedom, but you're acting in a way that is not bringing you freedom, but it is helping you keep your hands on the reins, so to speak.
0: Yeah. What you get is a sense of control. What you get is that sense of comfort that you know what you're doing in this place. And you can still grow from that stage. It's just kind of stressful. I mean, I don't want to necessarily poo-poo on what he wants to do because, I mean, that's the business he wants to create. That's fine. But it's capped. It will never give him the freedom that he could have if he just shifted his approach a little bit.
1: Yeah. So assuming we're talking about a CEO who is willing to take that next step, who's not attached to this idea of a lifestyle business as they have defined it, what is missing from a lot of these businesses that will actually bring the CEO the the freedom that they're desiring?
0: I think the accountability structures is something that's really critical. That's step two in our program of putting in place the accountability structures. And I know this is something that I personally, as a CEO, has struggled with for years. And what it really came down to is a mindset of me not really valuing it as much. And what made a huge difference is when I've had managers in places that have supported that and also times where there has been transition there where I've really had to step up and really bring in a new level of accountability and excellence to the team. So the accountability structures is something that's missing, but it's not just to like going in and putting in place a growth plan and strategic objectives and scorecards and all of that thing. Yes, it entails that if you don't know what's going to go on those things, if you don't have a way of implementing it on the simplest way to just get it moving, to get it in place at whatever level you can, not perfect, but if. And if you don't have a way of mobilizing your team and getting them excited and you know having those raise the bar conversations and saying, this is where we're going, this is how we're getting there. And that is going to be the make or break difference between whether you can actually create the kind of business for yourself and for the team otherwise. I mean, we're talking about lifestyle business. It's a selfish perspective actually. And that's something I wanna actually mention too because the lifestyle business is all about you. It's all about me. It's all about my needs. It's all about whether I can get that car whether I can buy that house is all about me. And by the way, there's really nothing wrong with that because that's why we start the business. And, you know, you need to be taking care of yourself and your family. But one of the things that we have found is, is that you get to a point where that's just not enough. It's not enough to take things to the next level where you need to have a bigger vision. We talked about that in the last episode about how they like that money is just not enough. Really, that perspective that's very selfish about me is actually the biggest thing that's actually holding you back from having more freedom. The biggest reason why is because your team does not care about you getting that car or buying the new house. They don't care about that at all. They don't care about you funding your retirement, really. They care about themselves, their goals, how they want to grow in their career. They care about how they want to grow within their roles and become better and make a bigger impact. So your vision has to be a lot more driven by that And when you can immobilize a team based on helping them get what they want, then you'll be able to get what you want in increasingly higher levels. And you will not need to have your hands in all the little cracks in the business and be there to like make sure everything is being done because you'll have a team that's driving forward your business because they want to, not because you have some whip that you're cracking them with, which unfortunately, when you hear accountability structures, that's the approach.
1: Yeah. Yeah one of the reasons why that doesn't work with like the cracking the whip approach is they're just kind of applying the same standards that they had for themselves when they were the ones doing everything. And just like applying that to more people without getting that piece of why should these other people care about doing this? Why should the people on your team work really hard to create these things, make these results so that you can put a picture of yourself in front of a Bentley on your website or whatever. Our
0: clients are not those kind of people, thankfully.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But like, still like, what can CEOs do to um, start shifting this in their business? How does they actually go about this aspect of like, how do I motivate my team instead of just motivating myself?
0: One thing is recognizing your selfish blind spot. We all have it.
1: <laughs> yeah, that can be painful to look oh at sometimes. Oh my gosh, is
0: it ever. But recognizing that and really shifting for how can we build an inspiring vision that people are going to get behind that they could be part of. And that's one piece. How can that support them? their vision in their life. And we have some processes that we help our clients implement and to be able to do that. But it's going back to that I think that Dale Carnegie says in his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's my favorite leadership book of all time. Is I have a position as a leadership book, but I love this book. Is it there's only one way to get people to do anything. And that's they have to want to. You have to get them to want to do that. And he gives some examples of that. That's really the big motivator the big shift here. I have spoken to CEOs earlier on in our business. Some of these CEOs were saying, well, you know what? I'm paying people really well. I just can't get them to do anything unless I'm standing there watching them. You know, they proceed to criticize the last consultant they worked with who wasn't able to make change in their company. And and I quickly ended the conversation and let them know that there's no way for us to help because... The problem is, is that the guy's a jerk that nobody wants to follow. The reason why they're going to want to follow him and be able to work at the business is because they desperately need money. They're willing to pay more. So just for people to to stick around, you know, he had to pay at least a 20, 30% premium. And those are not people who are loyal. Those are people who are just sticking around because they're going to get paid a little bit more and they'll deal with a little bit of abuse until they get sick of it. So there is a misconception, I'm using a very polarized example of it people who are listening to this podcast aren't jerks like that. But that's a polarized example of how you can get people to do things because they want to based on just throwing more money at them. But it's that's only a band-aid solution that's not going to really solve things. So it's good to pay people well and compensate people well. If people are working for your company just for the money, that's a problem. That's a real problem. And when people come into Hands Off CEO, I want them to have at least three different reasons aside from money why they want to be part of what we're building. There's got to be three things that are important to them and that's going to create a stickiness so that when someone comes and offers them a dollar or two more an hour, they don't just jump ship.
1: Yeah. Is that something that you recommend CEOs kind of make an explicit part of their hiring and interview process or as part of their check-ins or is it just kind of something to keep in mind?
0: It's a general way of being to shift into for your whole company and a culture around around our enrollment, being a, a culture around people getting what they need. I'd like to think of it as being a decent human being, but we can have blind spots and realize, oh, wow, we're not doing that. I think it's just something to, to be aware of. And it is something that I'm listening to. Like, for example, if we're hiring someone, here's just a little tip, like we're going through and the first question I ask is, what attracted you about this position? And if they say, oh, this looks like a perfect fit for my expertise. Then I might just throw them a bone a little bit and say, all right, well, you know, why hands-off CEO? And if they don't have a good answer to that, if it's clear that they haven't done some research next, I know that they're not bought into our vision. They know they don't care. I've heard some pretty interesting stories. I, Some people who are not bought into the vision at all, and it was so interesting. It was like night and day experience, and that can give you some real contrast in your hiring. But I think that if you don't have someone that's bought into your vision, don't even consider them. It doesn't matter how good of an applicant they are. They're not bought into what you're doing. They're never going to fight for your vision. They're never going to be part of it. And just keep looking. There are lots of great people out there. Yes, you're going to have to screen. You're going to have to find really good people. But it's worth your time and energy to find exceptionally good people. But I've noticed our best applicants that come in, they're listening to our podcast. And that takes a little more effort than just going and skimming the website.
1: Yes, true. I think that that's interesting because relating it back to the idea of a lifestyle business and the idea that some CEOs are at least telling themselves that they don't want to grow because maybe they don't want to take the time to find out, to sift through applicants if they need to bring someone onto their team and find out somebody who's actually going to be bought in. If they are restricting themselves to a certain level of growth and saying they don't need to go higher, they might be more incentivized to just hire the first person who seems competent and let it go with that. And that can create problems down the road. Do you see CEOs finding themselves in that position? Oh, yeah. They haven't tried. They haven't thought that far ahead with the way they hired. And so they have a team of people who are just there for the paycheck and leave as soon as they can.
0: Yeah, for sure. And it's really easy to get into this situation too, because at times you can get desperate. You can either have a big spike of growth, or you could have either layoffs or people quit or For whatever reason you have some changes in your business and you need to staff up and your standards can slip a little bit sometimes when you're in a desperate situation that's one thing the other thing is is that we see that a lot of our clients have really fantastic team members but they feel like it's a little bit by accident they don't feel like they could replicate that and finding that talent on a consistent basis is challenging so one of the big things and i was talking about me going through and talking and having these conversations I do that more like on the end, last conversations, but really the earlier conversations, the team should be doing that. The team should be going through and and filtering and sorting before you. And what that means is you have to have a good hiring process in place. So that's one of this, we give our clients this hiring funnel that they can install into their company so that they can be able to, Mm -hmm. to have someone else on their team manage the whole hiring process. We also have some recruiting partners that do a lot of it for you. That being said, and they're pretty reasonably priced ones. And in fact, we even use some of those recruiting partners because even though we have the skills within our team, sometimes we don't have the bandwidth. So it just makes more sense to to pay someone to do some of those earlier stages. And then we're doing just the last interviews after they've done the, the screening and the earlier stages in that funnel. So you need to have a clear process that's replicatable, that's very clear on this is how we select for our core values. This is how we know whether they are have a scoring system for evaluating your team members and then having other people on your team giving feedback. And it's very interesting the things that other people on your team will pick up that you won't and just having that humility of knowing that you're not as good at hiring as you think. Your hunch is not always that good. It will always be good for if it's a bad hunch. Always. If you get a bad feeling about somebody, walk away. Run, actually. The biggest thing that I see a lot of consulting agency CEOs run into problems with is not having a really good, clear process in place for being able to replicate those hires. And if you can't do that, it's a lot easier to fall into the pattern of hiring a warm body because it's a little better than what you have now.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned that some of the CEOs, I think there's either the people who think that they're better at hiring than they are and they're getting uncertain results, but then there's the people you mentioned who have great people on their team, but don't think that they can get more people like that. That is, from what I'm hearing, one of the reasons why people have, are afraid of growing to that next level because they know that going past the early seven figures is going to just bring more of that onto their plate. Are those fears overblown, do you think, for most of these CEOs?
0: No, they're totally not overblown. I think that maybe they were a little bit overblown three years ago, but. What's changed? We have a hiring crisis in our country, in the United States, in North America in general. And for this reason, it was- We have actually done a lot more hiring with our clients overseas for roles than we ever have in the past. We've had some exceptionally good hires, both in our company and our clients' companies from different places around the world. So there is a shortage of talent. There's a talent war that's going on. We're really in a place where there's a talent war. And there are some roles you absolutely need to have in your own country. There are just some roles that make sense, high-level strategic roles a lot of times you'd be surprised at what you can find in different countries as well. But I do think that it is something that you have to take a different approach with. It's a different approach that we have, we've been teaching for, you know, almost a decade with how we've been teaching hiring, but around, you know, a bigger vision, inspiring people to come and work for your company for more reasons than just money, building a culture that makes them want to be part of something. And I'll actually just share real quick, Josh and Marcello, their companies Amplinate, they have, uh, really high-level research company that works with the top tech companies in the world. They are competing with talent from Facebook, from Google, from some of these large companies that are able to pay them very, very high salaries. So when they were first starting their company, we worked with them from a pretty earlier startup stage for them because they grew so quickly. They were able to add a million dollars in growth in the first year. And one of the biggest reasons why they were able to do that was because they were able to get that staffing piece down. How they were able to really get that staffing piece down and be able to attract in the very best level of talent is by building a world-class culture. And they have shared with us recently, and I know they're not gonna mind me sharing this because this is something to be stinking proud of. Like they have team members who have been with them almost from day one for over three years. And for the amount of turnover that's happened during this time period, that's incredible. That's just incredible. And that comes down to them building a culture where people want to be part of what they're doing. It's building a culture where people feel heard, they feel seen, and they're doing good work. This doesn't mean you're not doing hard work together. It doesn't mean that there aren't demands for the role. What it means is that you have reasons to actually move through those demands and do your best work that have really nothing to do with money.
1: Right. That's one of my favorite Stories. I think it's episode 65 of the podcast. If you haven't listened to it yet, you should. Because Josh talks a lot about how they were able to, like, from an early stage startup with no funding, get some of the best talent that has really high skills that could easily get a job at a company like Google. And they were competitive on price, I think Josh said, but not or on salary, but not really able to outgun a company like Google or Facebook. But they were still able to create jobs that people loved they're not afraid at all about their talent getting poached, even though they're helping people step up their skills and make themselves a lot more marketable in the industry. By creating the culture that they have, they're not at all worried about the people who are helping drive their business forward leaving. And I think that's really powerful because there is a lot of that kind of scarcity mindset right now going around with the talent war that you might lose your best people or you have to do different tactics to keep people to stay here when what, especially in Joshua Marcello's story, They just gave people dream jobs, even though they maybe weren't making as much money. They gave them the opportunity to do work that was important, do really interesting work that they would have liked to do earlier in their careers, but the opportunities are hard to find. And it was about the work and about what the company was doing, which was the reason why these really high level people wanted to work there, not just because it was a competitive payday. And I think that's really interesting, especially for people who are scaling to the point where they need more than a. Small handful of team members to do things. So I definitely recommend listening to that episode if, for anyone who hasn't. There's another story we talked about a software CEO who I think really kind of imp- exemplifies this change from a lifestyle business that wasn't actually functioning as a lifestyle business to a business that didn't look like a lifestyle business from the outside or anything, but was actually supporting the lifestyle that he always wanted. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the CEO?
0: Yeah, definitely. I'm going to not use his real name because I want to tell a deeper side of the story. Just to be anonymous, I want to tell the story about the bigger impact here and how it impacted their life. It goes as a continuation of our last episode and it's just kind of this theme of like sharing the bigger why behind our work, the bigger why behind the whole movement of becoming a hands-off CEO. That's what I wanted to share about. This CEO has a successful software consulting company, let's call him Barry, not to be confused with a different Barry client we've had in the past, but we'll call him Barry. The reason why he came to Hands Off CEO is he got to a point where he was working all the time. He had kept it smaller because that's kind of what he felt like he could manage. He had brought on some staff members to be able to support him as the company continued to grow, but he's still with the bottleneck to everything. And... I mean, we could talk about all the things that we did going through and making the company more sustainable. That was actually what was keeping him stuck in the day-to-day of the business, that the pricing model that he had had, even though it wasn't a bad fee within his industry, it wasn't creating sustainable structures within his business for him to actually step back and to be able to pay people to do his work. So one of the first things we restructured his offers to look at how do we be able to double his price point? And he did that right overnight with all of his clients actually some of our clients have to go and find some different ways to up level their clients into that next offer for him he was able to double prices overnight he could have tripled them there was enough value but he felt comfortable with the doubling it you know if you're looking at doubling prices that doesn't double your profits that can you know as much as increase profits thousands of percent because the extra amount of money additional fee on the top is pure profit so We got that sustainable and we broke that down to make it easier for him to be able to train up and develop people to do these different roles. And he was able to put these people into place. And as this was all happening, three months into this process, he shared that, okay, I am now working a reasonable work week. I knew it was bad, but he didn't share what had really been going on. He was working until one o'clock in the morning, every day, sometimes through the night, And he was just holding it all together for his family. You know, he was trying to continue growing this company to to the point he could, but at the same time, this extra risk that he's taking on, this is a lot to carry, right? Meanwhile, his wife is working too, to be able to create an extra stability for his family. Anyway, gets up to a place where three months into it, he has created some dramatic changes in his business and he was so much happier. And he said, you know what? I'm seeing the sun now a whole part of the year, I'm working so long that I don't actually go outside and see the sun. And you know, it's really helped me with some seasonal depression that I had. And shortly thereafter, he was able to make his company more sustainable so that his wife was able to quit her job. She quit her job and then they chose to grow their family. They were able to have another baby. And it just started the chain reaction of things in his life. And fast forward 18 months later and he had doubled his company. And he had gone from working a countless number of hours around the clock sometimes. This is a pretty extreme example. Most of our clients are now working more than 60 hours per week, sometimes more. But in his case, he was was able to go from countless number of hours, doubling his company down to 10 hours per week. Another 30 hours per week he was spending on these different software products that were scalable, that were very scalable, he wanted to continue to bring to this next level. That was really cool to see what was possible with Barry.
1: Yeah, that's huge. If not the CEOs need to think of their hourly rate that much, but like his hourly rate went up hundreds of percent over those six months. He's just so much more effective. And I can only imagine I was never the type of student in college to pull all nighters. I maybe did two in four years. And They wrecked me. And I was 19, 20 years old. I can only imagine what working like that consistently over time would do to you, to your mind, to your body, not seeing the sun. All of those things are really huge. After this transformation, what happened after these 18 months where he found himself working 10 hours?
0: He got to a place where things were a lot more sustainable and it gave him the ability to focus a lot more on his family. I checked back in with him a few years later one of the things he shared with me is is that, and this is why I'm sharing this anonymously because it's pretty personal. He said something I didn't tell you about is that we had a daughter, a little girl, she was around four, who had a, a very debilitating illness, and he was able to spend extra time with his sweet daughter before she actually passed. And I actually hadn't thought about this until now, but can you imagine what this would be like though, for his wife to be able to spend her time 100% with her children who really needed her at that time and who really needed her at that stage with the kind of health issues that they were dealing with with their daughter.
1: That's huge. If he hadn't done this work in his company, his wife wouldn't have had the opportunity to stay home. And he also would have been changed to his computer the way he was before. And I can only imagine what it would feel like to have that happen, but regret not being with her more. I mean, it's going to be incredibly hard no matter what. But if you can't even be there because of your business, that's not a lifestyle business in any sense of the word.
0: These are just some of the examples where I have felt like there were some of these connections that were made that were just kind of meant to be connections, that their lives were changed so impactfully with work that just needed it at the right time. And I wanted to share another example of this too, actually, as we were going through this, and this kind of piggybacks off the last episode, but this is an example of where... Barry had a company that was relatively small. I mean, he had a few staff members, but I want to give an example of a company that's larger than this. We'll call him Finn, not his real name, but his company was at 3 million. So, relatively large company. He had at least a dozen team members and still was very much involved in the day to day business. The company was very much dependent on him. And He was referred over by a colleague of mine who knew that this was one of our areas of expertise. And the reason why, and his big why for why he needed to get out of his business is that his wife was actually diagnosed with breast cancer and he needed to be there with her to support her through the treatments. Also, you know, just that time is priceless. You just don't know what will happen next. Thankfully, she has been in remission and she has been able to maintain good health, but. You can have this happen as companies are larger as well. Even with, you can have a lot of team members. It's just, there could be more people to manage, more people to oversee and make sure that they're doing the right things. And there's a number of things that can be done so that you can really step back from the day-to-day management of that. It gives you that, that freedom to be able to, to focus on the things in your life that really matter. I will be honest when I hear stories like this and in Finn's case. I had a first conversation with him when he shared that with me. I remember having this feeling of a pit in my stomach because I was like, we can't screw this up. This is too important. It's a little
1: more pressure than I want to make more money.
0: But at the same time, I remember just feeling like there's a way that we can help him and with a way that we can help his company, then we'll just give our 100% and know that basically know that God's going to support us to make it happen because it's important for him in his life
1: that situation is a theme that happens with a lot of businesses at this stage, whether or not the CEO is thinking of themselves as a lifestyle business. But if a business is going to really support your lifestyle, it has to be able to support you through these unplanned emergency periods. And I think a lot of businesses, especially businesses where the CEO structured the business as a lifestyle business, I don't want a bigger team. I don't want to grow beyond a certain point because I want to be able to handle it. Those businesses... They are some of the least prepared to like actually support you through a difficult period in your life. If you need to take two to eight weeks off with no notice, I think your typical high six-figure, low seven-figure lifestyle business might be completely broken if that happened. Whereas you're giving CEOs the tools to support their lifestyle in a much fuller sense, not just like, here's the stuff I want to buy and here's how much I want to work.
0: Right. One of the things that I, I've seen a contrast in this too where we've had CEOs that have come to us after the fact, after something big like this has happened. And what's gone on is the company goes through this very hard transition where they have to be out either dealing with their own illnesses, their family illnesses, things that you need to focus on the most important things. I've seen how the company just spirals down to the point where there's just really not much there. I say, well, what can you do? I'm like, well, there's nothing we can do here because... You don't really have much left to even work with, and you waited too long. In some cases, I'm not blaming them because you don't know these things can happen. But in other cases, there are a lot of things you can do to prevent it, but it takes being able to focus on what's important in the business so that the business can take care of everyone in it, including the CEO. One example of where that didn't happen, a friend of mine who was a top leader at a PR company, overnight, she went from being one of the top people and having a great job at this organization to having the company shut down because there was a member of their family who had cancer basically, and they just shut the whole business down. Just shut it down. Contrast that to, we have a client who not very long ago, less than a year ago, started down the hands-off CEO path and was able to get his team in place, really running everything as a business, including Delegating out sales. So he has actually gone through every single one of the exits in less than a year. Some of exit one had actually been done, but this is someone who's just had the focus and willingness and some pieces already in place to build on already. And he's been in this situation where he's been in the hospital for a much more extended time and he's been able to be away from his business for months and the business is just going great. That's the kind of thing that I want to be hearing from CEOs is that. They have the business that they can lead that gives them the freedom, the safety net to be able to not worry about money during that harder time in their life. Because I mean, we all have these times in our life. We need to be able to have that ability to be able to step back and have this business to continue generate income for ourselves, income for everyone on our team, and not have to just completely pause it or shut it down or any of those things when life does happen.
1: So are there... A couple of things, two or three things that you might recommend if a CEO recognizes that their business might not support them through a difficult period like this, that they don't have the safety net or the ability to step away, where should these CEOs start shifting their mindset, upskilling? What are the first two or three things they should be thinking about? They're trying to go in this direction.
0: We've talked about the different exits to be able to remove yourself. The more of the exits that you can make out of the company, the more sustainable the company is going to be. So exit zero is getting out of like little admin pieces that you have no business doing. That's exit zero, right? That's actually what we do with our first step in our program is getting them out of those pieces. The second piece is getting out of a client and account management, client project management, account management, the day-to-day management of clients. That's getting out of that piece and there's and it's separating it from strategy too, which comes at a later's exit. Exit 2 is getting out of the operations management and this is where you actually have somebody else who is better skilled at being able to run the day-to-day of your company to be able to put the systems and processes in place to operationalize your business to operationalize a next level offer and we won't go into that but we've talked about that a lot in other episodes around getting that irresistible offer in place. That irresistible offer is what allows the company to have a lot higher Level of sustainability and profitability, like we were just talking about with Barry and how their pricings needed need to be increased so that he actually could sustainably hire people to replace himself. That's one of the biggest things that we see is that if there's not enough profit and cash flow in the business, then what happens is the CEO is forced to be too hands off because they can't afford to pay somebody else to do this in a sustainable way. That is exit two. Exit three is getting out of client strategy. That's building on getting out of the day-to-day delivery, the next piece of strategies, so you're probably the key strategist. Those listening, you're going to have the most skills out of anyone on the team. So at some point, you're the key strategist. So you're going to be able to have to find a way to clone yourself. Coming back to the irresistible offer, getting really clear on, you know, what's the standardized offer and promise that we're bringing to clients? Who is that profit sweet spot? And letting go, really at this stage, like letting go of this need to customize everything for your clients. Now, Yes, there is going to be some customization for every client, but we're talking 20% of customization, not 80%. Being able to bring the magic baked on top of proven processes that you know work. And that takes some focus and takes making decisions. And that's why that irresistible offer is so important because it's foundational to everything. It's being able to operationalize your day-to-day services. You've got to have a clearly defined offer what success looks like. So your team can actually operationalize that. You probably already have a lot of systems and processes in place for some of them, but how do you be able to orchestrate that for an end-to-end solution that removes you from the day-to-day delivery? And then the next is the strategy, and how we do that was with uh, apprenticeship programs and helping our clients put together that right apprenticeship program based on some of the earlier steps. And then exit four is removing themselves out of sales. That part is one of the hardest exits, and. For you to be successful with it, you have to have defined what success looks like for an offer. So as you can see, these exits build on themselves and then to eventually exit five to be able to, it's where you're building wealth systems for your business and that next level. And that's really where you really have a company that can run completely without you and that you could be building out multiple wealth streams from it. But that's not what's needed in place for you to have a company that will give you that freedom. like. Tom shared this, for example, he had something come up with a member of his family he shared on our podcast where he had to be gone for weeks at a time, and he wasn't out of all of those exits at this time. He's definitely further along than that now, but he was out of exit one, and he was out of some of the exit two, so he had gotten out of part of those things, and his team was able to run his business without him for a matter of, of weeks, nearly a month. And doing that is what allowed him to be able to double his sales on top of that in in a matter of six months. So they go hand in hand. It's not just about the lifestyle. The same things that are going to give you more freedom in your business are going to give you the ability to generate more growth in your business in a way that is not tied to you. And the reason why you can generate more growth in the business is because it's not directly tied to your time. And that's how you remove yourself as a bottleneck to growth, and it allows you to create that next level lifestyle that you really want. And the reason why you started the business in the first place.
1: Yeah, that sounds great.
0: So I hope that this was a valuable episode for you. Thanks so much, Ross, for these great questions and the way that you've been tying in some of the past episodes that we've done. You've got such a good memory for the number of episodes. <laughs> Thanks, listeners. I would love to hear what, what are your thoughts on this? Have you ever gone into that lifestyle trap in the past? And what did it take for you to get past that? I'd love to hear your comments, your suggestions. And if you wouldn't mind going and leaving us a review over on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening in and have a fantastic rest of your day.